Welcome back, everyone. Today is episode 32 of Dangerous Rhetoric, and we are very honored to have Dr. Mark Changizi join us. He's our first science, uh, scientist uh, to come on the show. So thank you so much, Mark, for joining us. Mark is a author, scientist, entrepreneur. Do you want to give like a little brief introduction? Yeah, uh, great to be here. Um, I'm a mathematician, PhD in math, undergrad physics, math, and ended up becoming like a, a theoretical cognitive scientist sort of studying why, more why questions or what for, why are we designed the way we are? Why is culture designed the way it is? And some kind of, you know, these kinds of more emergent uh, uh, phenomena kinds of issues uh, uh, and design questions about humans and the way humans act in large numbers. Yeah, so you had like six books published? Yeah, we haven't read any yet, but we're going to get on that for sure. <laughs> yeah, and then during the commercial break, get to it, yeah. <laughs> um, so, Dr. Dr. Mark, you've been very outspoken uh, during this, uh, this whole pandemic uh, craziness. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about your trouble with YouTube, what happened just recently? Yeah, I mean, like, as background, in terms of very outspoken, I mean, I, I didn't really realize that this is going to become a left-right political thing back in March 10th of 2020 was my first tweet about this. And um, at the time, nobody was saying anything like what I was saying. I couldn't find anybody. I was just like, this is clearly a mass hysteria. Uh, everybody's prefacing the word pandemic with deeply dangerous, totally no novel uh, coronavirus. Uh, it was just obviously hyped up and just everything about it was hyped up. And I said, this is going really badly and it's gonna go really badly really quickly. But, and I just said, I, you know, I keep my mouth shut for historically as a scientist who's a libertarian, and all of my colleagues are far left and all of my science communicator journalist colleagues, because I write books and things, are all far left. And it's like, there's no reason to get into these sorts of minor hysterias that are always with us, woke stuff and global warming stuff. These are things that hurt society, but at such at sufficiently slow friction rates that you can survive. But this was was just clearly going to uh, uh, it was it was primed to wreck things so quickly. I just felt like I've got to come out and start talking about this. And it wasn't a left right thing, at least in the beginning. Um, plenty of people on the left were on my side. Some of my first colleagues that I found against this were communists, because at least communists understood you can't freeze an economy. You know, like that doesn't even make sense. And uh, it, of course, eventually transformed despite Trump being, you know, uh, uh, the one who was providing these guidelines that all the governors were following for lockdowns. It's still somehow his heart wasn't as much into it as the left eventually was. And so it became a left right thing, even though it has nothing to do with left right per se. It's about freedom versus authoritarian. Yeah. So I've been out on, on, on this uh, slowly finding more and more colleagues over, over time. But, um, but I'd say this is, except for things about free expression, I never really uh, intended to, you know, become a politically, uh, a political, and I don't really still don't consider this political in the left-right sense. So I always had kept my head down, uh, just not really feeling it was worth even getting into these sorts of things. But really, there was no way to keep your head down. Uh, and I'm glad I spoke up. And I just wish more academics were. Uh, but unfortunately, most of them are brainwashed. Yeah. How, how has your like life changed? Has it changed like drastically since you decided to speak? Uh, just my life in general? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, yeah, certainly yeah, it's taking your career and stuff too, all of that. Because I know yeah. like people are taking some serious hits in, in their careers and their jobs. Yeah. For no, I mean, for me, I, I am... I, I would hope that I would have done this had I been in normal academia. So 10 years ago, 2010 or so, I decided to leave regular academia. I'd been, you know, I'd been at University of College Cork in Ireland. I'd been at Duke and 
Caltech and you know Rensselaer Polytechnic up in up in New York. And then I had decided to start my own research institute with a colleague, uh, uh, Tim Barber, and then start a couple some companies around that. The idea was to really was to buy my intellectual freedom because as a theorist in academia, we're constantly begging for grants. You know, you write twenty grants and you hope you get one, and then when you get it, you're to get a grant, you've got to basically, you know, uh, uh, say that you're going to do three years worth of bullcrap experiments that I didn't even want to do because I'm a theorist. So I was like, even if I win this game, I lose because I'm stuck doing three years of experiments of do some bullcrap grant that I didn't even want to get, but you're just playing this game. So I said, I want to win my intellectual freedom so that I can do the kinds of things that we romantically wanted to do when you went to graduate school, which is like work on, for a, on a project for three, four or five years and have this big dissertation level one big grand unifying, you know, you can't do that in academia. You got to publish three or four times. So anyway, I left academia and that has given me a kind of intellectual freedom, both to do great big projects, which I've continued to do, but also as it turns out, it may have given me the level of aloofness to be not brainwashed. And uh, had I been in academia, I might've just been so swamped by the echo chamber of their thoughts that I just was never, never had the opinion that I have now, or I may have had the opinion right now, but I would just been so afraid of losing my job that I, you know, just kept my mouth shut, like so many people that I know do. I hope that I wouldn't, but you know, I, I one of the main points that I like to make in my science moment series on YouTube and elsewhere is is understanding these psychosocial forces. We are all susceptible to them. None of us are above them. If I escape this brainwashing, it's only because of I've purposely tried to make my life aloof for intellectual sort of academic reasons, so as a, to be a good theorist, and I've always tried to do it politically as well. And I think that is what what allowed me to escape the uh, sort of the brainwashing that's happened. Yeah. Um, you know, Jordan Peterson talks about this often and I bring him up a lot because I like him. But he you know, he talks about how when we look back at the periods of, say, the Holocaust or, you know, the stuff that was going on during the Bolshevik Revolution and all that. You know, we all like to think like, oh, I wouldn't have been a Nazi or I would have been the one who was hiding Anne Frank in, in, in my attic and all that stuff. Right. And I think we, we forget, like you said, we are susceptible. And Solzhenitsyn said, you know, the line, the line of good and evil runs through every human heart. And what it comes down to is were, were circumstances different or say you were alive back then, the chances are very, very high that, yes, we would have been Nazis. And I think we all want to, like, think well of ourselves that in these, these times, right, of turmoil that we'll do the right thing and, and act in the noble way. But it's just, it's not realistic. And I think the more we realize we are susceptible, that's how we become less susceptible to becoming authoritarians. Right. And a lot of people see, you know, that if they hear you mention the Nazis, they're saying, are you accusing of being, us of being racist? No. And so then, and the reason I like to mention, I, you know, I, I mentioned, it's nice to mention multiple of these totalitarianism. So you're not thinking, you're not uh, you know, uh, looking as if you're accusing the people today of being uh, race. You know, uh, cultural revolution in China uh, or the Bolsheviks could have been one. But the Cultural Revolution in China, it's a class thing. Nazis, it's an ethnicity thing. And, and in Iran, where my family comes from, it's a religious thing. All of these, they're very fundamentally different kinds of bases for discrimination and uh, where who the unclean enemy are. But they're ultimately the same underlying psychosocial forces of these disgusting, unclean people who have not joined the righteous club and there you you create these virtue signals you're not consciously creating them it just ends up that there are these virtue signals that get created and that are difficult and you wouldn't wear otherwise masks 
or various kinds of things. They, they, they're like been, signal allegiance, and that's they're signal allegiance. I, I've compared the mask before online to like the armband, and I definitely pissed people off by doing that. But and, and you know, yeah. I'm not saying it's exactly the same thing, obviously, but to deny that it has a, a sort of symbolic power and value to it now, I think is to just right. not be paying attention to what's happening because it's clearly right. a a political like signal of allegiance more than anything, I think. Yeah, and, and more it's just as important as showing that I'm if I was part of the cult. So just as important, it's it, it not only identifies members, but more importantly, it, it identifies non-members in the most in yeah. the most uh, reli- the most uh, extreme non-members who are willing to actually push back. And then once you can identify the non-members, you can punish them. And that's exactly what the masks and mandates and uh, 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 vax mandates have done. And it's already done. I mean, in many parts of the world, it's already done. We already have virtue signals which have become embedded in society, identify the enemy and banish them, literally, right? This is no, it, it already happened. It's already happening right now, right? This is not something that, and that's what these virtue signals do. And that's what they're doing. And literally people have lost their jobs and are under the threat or already banished from society. Yeah, it's, it's like it's no longer a matter of like, oh, we're heading towards totalitarianism. It's like, no, we've actually sort of arrived at an early stage of it. We are already in the midst of it. Yeah, Bob yeah. Altemeyer did some interesting research. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he wrote a book. He like wrote the book on authoritarianism. He called the, the book's actually called The Authoritarians. Uh, it's a free ebook. It's available online. And mm-hmm. his research basically shows that like roughly half the population has these authoritarian tendencies, whether it's that they like to glom on to a external sort of uh, group that gives them, you know, how to live their lives. They become very pious people, very religious, or they get like almost emotionally and like psychologically invested in any sort of, you know, like group that tells you how to live your life. And then within the authoritarians, there's the people that prefer to tell people what to do. And then there's the people that like to follow. And then on the other side, you have more individualist type in people who like to come up with their own set of rules and morals and ethics that they live by, you know, just by going through their life experience and, learning different systems and taking bits from here, bits from there. And and it's just, this is a fundamental part of human nature. And it kind of makes sense because in our period of evolutionary adaptation, we were living as, you know, family-based tribes where, you know, you had to really cohere as a group in order to survive and prosper and reproduce. So we have all this like leftover stuff from this period of emotion, uh, evolutionary adaptation that is still influencing us today because, you know, like evolutionarily speaking, it's that period is just like yesterday. It's like, you know, the the rate of evolution happens is very, very slow. Um, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and ask you about the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. Have you looked into uh, the lab leak theory, Peter Daszak, um, you know, the Wuhan Institute and any of that? No, I, I mean, I know about it, all of these things, but I haven't really done the deep dive and, and, and sort of wrap my head around the thought. From my point of view, it's, it's sort of, it's obvious that it really, you know, one of the more plausible hypotheses, hypotheses is that it's a lab leak it's really, really hard to contain respiratory viruses. It's, it's practically impossible. They're aerosols. It's like just doing experiments all day long with this smoke stuff and trying to all keep it contained, which you can only do with like plastic kinds of materials. Yeah. Of course, you know, there's, it's very common that they get leaked into and someone gets sick who works there. And then, of course, they go home before they realize it and it spreads. Um, so that's I don't know whether that turns out, you know, that is, there's a whole lot of genetic sampling, all you know, but that's. 
that's the most obvious hypothesis, the most plausible one. And why it was ever thought to be the least plausible one in a conspiracy is, is of course, both mind-blowing and obvious because the people who funded it and, you know, did gain a function research, however, I don't think that they did a, made it particularly gained in function since it's still actually a very, uh, a relatively weak virus, so to speak, with a really low IFR. But nevertheless, um, the people who funded it are now the people in charge of telling us what to do about it, which is... Um, exactly why they're going to potentially hide the fact that they did it. So I don't I think it was probably just an accidental uh, um, um, uh, release a mistake early 2019, even as far as I can tell, or even I don't, I don't know exactly the origins, but a lot earlier than people thought. And um, they they were shitting themselves basically as as they realized this was expanding. And then and a lot of this is a kind of cover up um, after the fact. But I don't think it was purposeful. I don't believe these kinds of cases that there was some purposeful of let's do this and then we'll cause uh, hysteria, and then we can use that. Then all of these big tech companies can grow, and we can kill the you know the, the, the a lot of people. Then leveraged what happened, leveraged hysteria, and grew and filled vacuums and you know corruption, all this stuff, the stuff. Yeah, but in terms of it purposefully started, no. There was a lot of people ready and you know prepared to leverage this kind of stuff. But if it ever happened, bro. I and think rich enough to do it. Yeah, I think it's possible it could have been released, but yeah, that's not something I, I don't think we can ever really know at this point. But what we can see, like you said, for sure, is that the, the situation was taken advantage of and was seen as like, oh, this is a perfect opportunity to like grab more power, to increase surveillance, to change the economic landscape, et cetera. So I don't even think it had to be something deliberate. I think just right. people in power will always use a crisis to try to obtain more power or to increase their power and to, to keep it. Right. So yeah. I didn't mean, think they had to cause the crisis for that. Right. And even, even 99% of the people who are trying to get more power in government, they really believe they're doing good things. That's the dangerous thing about totalitarianism. You know, the neighbor on the street that's attacking you for not wearing a mask or jogging too closely to somebody without a mask and all this little bullshit, they really believe they're doing the right thing. Right. And these politicians, the local ones, and the the or creating these ordinances, and the governors, and even the, they believe because they're an echo chamber that believes it that they think that they're really doing the thing that helps, that increases the safety most. So that doesn't mean that they're not culpable. That is what evil is. You know, that's what evil is in the real world. Evil in movies is that someone twiddling their mustache trying to do bad things. But real evil in the world is, except for like, you know serial killers or something like this real evil at the societal level is almost always on podcast here and uh <laughs> <laughs> well hello there and um and uh oh. real evil world is people thinking that they're doing good things for you yeah. but um but they're in fact you know killing people and breaking things and that's what real evil is you know it's the mindlessness of it you know it's just the unthinkingness of it evil just kind of happens in a mechanical way i don't know if you're familiar with uh, gurdjieff he was a early mystic philosopher but he called evil or he defined it as unconscious involuntary manifestations mm. i always found that an interesting description of what evil is because it doesn't have yeah, to be a deliberate thing it's just that mechanical hypnotic slumber that we're pulled into and we just we're going with the motions of things and yeah. think how easily it is to, you know, lead people into a terrible direction. And they just think they're just going, going with the motions of it. I was just following orders and it escalates yeah. to the point yeah. where, well, we know where it could go if you look at the early 20th century. So, right. And I think it's easier for people to wrap their minds around it. If you're just talking at the level of a mob on the street, you know, you can often have evil at the level of a group 
and barely any evil even at the level of the individual. And so even at the level of mo a mob, you can see this. So you've got, let's say, 100 people, and each of them may have just thrown like a pebble, you know, a small rock, or they're just any, if you just take any, what any one person did, it was barely anything, right? But it's the totality of it that ended up wrecking the whole block and breaking heads and so forth. Yeah. And, uh, but individually, look at each one, you kind of like, I feel like, you know, like no one was responsible. It was, the, it was only the responsibility and the evil really came out at the, at the emergent level because each individual who watched them were kind of shy and barely did anything. And, but that's enough. So, yeah. And at the societal level, it can, it, it can spread itself out even more so that each person is, is barely, you can barely even see any responsibility and yet the tremendous evil is being done. And it happens and, collectively. Um, yeah. I'm just going to kind of pass the torch to Brad a bit, and maybe you want to riff a little bit on Lobachevsky, because I think this is like really related to what we're talking about here in political ponderology. I feel like you could explain it better than me. Oh, so, well, I, I don't know if you've heard of this. There's this very obscure book called Political Ponderology, which was written by a Polish, Polish psychologist who lived through the sort of Nazi and then the subsequent communist takeover of Poland Both. in like the mid 20th century. Um, he ended up emigrating to the United States in the 80s. And while he was in school, he had a core group of uh, you know, colleagues and they sort of noticed these weird psychological manifestations happening in their, you know, their, their family and their, the other people. And so they came together and started colleagues to talk about it. And they ended up putting this book together, which was basically, it's called political ponderology. The word ponderology comes from the Greek poneros, uh, which means evil. So it's like, it's, it was actually a scientific attempt to study like macro social yeah. evil. So Lobachevsky, just to cut him really quick, but he, what he wanted to do was he felt that the problem of evil, too much of the focus was in the realm of like philosophy or religion and that there needs to be, I guess, a more scientific approach to studying the concept of evil. Like what is it? Mm -hmm. So yeah, he invented this thing, ponderology, which is literally the, stu the study of evil. So they wrote this book and it, it has, the book itself has a very interesting story. Uh, the first uh, copy, I believe, got thrown into an incinerator moments before the secret police busted in on their group. The second copy ended up getting sent with a courier to the Vatican in Rome. And for some reason, they didn't make a backup copy yeah. because that was the end of that one. And the uh, third copy, I think they, they actually, he had to reconstruct the whole thing from memory. And so the, the, that's what we have now is this uh, this book and it's it's really a direct English translation from the original Polish. So it comes in. It's the language is kind of clunky. It's a little a lot of jargon. He also has to invent a lot of words to describe the phenomenon because we don't we didn't have the words uh, in order to talk about what you know he went what the, the things that he was observing. Uh, yeah. So he basically talks about ponerogenesis, which is sort of like how a normal social movement can uh, become infiltrated by pathological personalities or people that have personality disorders. And slowly the, uh, the group or the organization, whether it's a political party or a country or you know, a, a business, it slowly becomes the opposite of what it was originally intended to be. And more and more pathological personalities um, end up coming in while more normal people who have functioning consciences end up leaving because they feel alienated. So 
he goes through uh, in this this book and basically describes the whole process and it's it's very interesting because it you know it, it relates sort of to what we're seeing today as more people become sort of pathological in terms of their obsession with you know what I call it a minor respiratory illness because <laughs> in reality it really is a minor respiratory illness yes some people have a very tough time with it mm-hmm. yes some people are very susceptible to having a very tough time with it um, but in general, you know, it has a very low IFR of like 0.0, you know, two, 5%, depending on, you know, an average. And it's just, it, it, it does seem to be minor. It's actually, you know, the flu is technically more dangerous to children, for example. So yep, yep. it just strikes me how, and, you know, we talk about it in terms of a cult-like mentality. And it does seem to have a lot of people wrapped up to the point where, you know, they have their masks on and talking about virtue signal. They have their masks on in their Twitter profile pictures. And I'm just yep. like, you guys realize that that doesn't do anything. Right. Yeah, but just- that, that goes to show that it, it's a, it's a signal. It's a symbol, you know, that's the point of doing that. It's not to protect anyone. Like why else would you put a picture of yourself as your avatar with a mask? But- you know, and to show people, hey, major I'm players, yeah. major players in sort of what he calls like macro social evil uh, end up being these pathological personalities, including psychopaths. And psychopathy is a very interesting topic. I'm not sure how much you've uh, ventured or dipped yeah. your toe into we that. We talk pool. about it a lot here. It's something I've, I've, I've spent a lot of time researching. Um, but, you know, generally psychopaths, you know, we have this sort of serial killer uh, understanding of them where the, the, there are, you know, judges, doctors, lawyers, you know, like they can, they can also be psychopaths and they can be very successful at concealing their true nature from, you know, the, the wider world. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the misconception, like you said, is that psychopaths are like crazy violent killers when that's honestly a small subset of them most psychopaths just operate on the shady side of the law and really it's just there's no conscience there but you put one of those people in power who's like charming and coercive and there's no conscience there well you see what happens in that you know i kind of view the conscience as a a mechanism that can be turned on and off and most of us haven't what makes a psychopath a psychopath is that that mechanism is simply it's like not there it's not a matter of it being turned on or off it's simply not there. And weirder than that is that they, many of them can start to get to a point where they realize they are fundamentally different than most people around them and will play act emotions, you know, to fit into particular social situations and that sort of thing. But, you know, when you think about the conscience as something that could be turned on and off, and then you get someone in power who doesn't have one, well, you can see how collectively you can get people to sort of selectively use their conscience and maybe they'll care about their dog dying or their grandma, but as soon as this person, you know, is ostracized for a vax pass, or you know, maybe you're racist, so you love your, you know, your white friends and family, but as soon as a black person is getting, you know, beat up or something, you don't care. So that idea of having a selective conscience is kind of, you know, that that's how I look at it. It can be turned on or turned off, and a psychopath doesn't have. Yeah. Well, see, look, I, 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 I disagree fundamentally with those kinds of viewpoints. Actually, I mean, where, but there's two different. So, for example, ma- both mass hysteria and, and evil. So, for example, you may have seen this video that's coursing around. I'll start on the mass hysteria side. It's a, it's a nice video showing both some of these historical mass hysterias where everybody's laughing for a week in some small town in Europe someplace uh, or whatever it might be. And they often try to explain these emergent phenomena by saying that the individuals are hysterical or irrational. Um, and I don't, I don't think that that's the case. I think that a 21st century, the way I like to describe it, 
if you want to understand these emergent phenomena, they really happen at the level of the emergent, at, at the emergent level. The individuals are fine, so to speak. There's nothing wrong with the individuals. They're acting just like you would were you to be in the network with the connectivity that's, that that network has in the narrative that, that, that's been built by virtue of being in that network, in that particular kind of network. And the same thing for evil. I think when you start to, that, sure, there's a few psychopaths out here and there. I think in reality, most psychopaths are dumb, uh, socially inept, and can't carry off the faking of it for very long. Real people that, when you start, often start, people start uh, talking about their political enemies, Trump is a sociopath, you know, whatever. Clinton is a, they're, they're, they are trying to come up with a theory and it, it often can make sense to them because when you want to explain bad things that are happening, you want to find a person who's evil or a person who's psychotic or something at the level of a group or an individual, like, you know, organization that has some intent. But I don't think that's what's going on. And I think that what real evil is almost all the time, except for the occasional Ted Bundy, like it's, it, the, most of these people aren't psychopaths. They really are um, a regular old folk that could well be you or could well be your dad. And there's nothing psych- they can they have a conscience just like you. They're just like you. But when you're in a network, and that's what's hard about explaining this, and I, is that these things really happen. Once you're in this network, you end up with you end up believing everything that we all believe is based upon um, what other people believe that we believe have high reputation. You, you don't do science yourself. And even me as a scientist, I have a dozen or you know, two different things that I've done over the years that I believe because of the data. The rest is because I believe high reputation people either online or other scientists or certain news organizations that I trust or my mom or whatever it might be. And if they all start saying things that are a little bit wrong and then I say it and then an echo, you know, you end up with the wrong kind of dynamics. We can all end up believing crazy sounding things and it ends up part of our narrative. And the interesting things about narratives is they have very similar properties to blockchains. Blockchains, the reason blockchains and cryptocurrency works is because, or the reason that it's difficult to get something like cryptocurrency to work is because it's a decentralized currency. There's no centralized bank that can do it. That's the whole point. You want it to be decentralized. But to make that work, you have to have this blockchain that's distributed like this this history of who gave what crypto coin to who over the last week and forever into the past. And it can't be fucked with, right? Now, the same problem happens for reputation. If you have a group, a social group, um, I argue with you and I say, Dan, you know, you, you're wrong. And you know, you're wrong. And like, no, totally, you're wrong, whatever. And it turns out that I was wrong, right? Then I lost, I lost reputation, but that's also a decentralized currency, right? It's decentralized and has to be tracked by the tribe because there's no central bank of currency. So the tribe then creates like gossip. Yeah, Mark was a dick the other day to him. And it's so funny because he's always <laughs> doing douchebaggy things. And it's just that, so Mark was wrong about that. And he lost And that these add up in the, each block being added to the chain is, is sort of the gossip. That's the history of that, that tribe or that group. And it amounts to what is a social narrative. And it turns out to be it's very hard to roll back for the same reasons the blockchains are really hard to roll back. They have a lot of mathematical analogies that makes it work so that we can't just fake it and say, no, I won the argument with Dan. What are you talking about? And, and then, no, it's distributed. So everybody knows. And it was that that that's what happened, because if I wanted to fake the last year of, of, of gossip, I'd have to come up with some crazy explanation that explains all of the things that happened, but with me getting all of the cred, you know, all the reputation. So it turns out to be very hard to undo when you're in these groups and there's these gossip blockchains that get formed and are hard to unroll, 
you end up with these social narratives and they have their own kind of momentum or their own uh, immutability. And everybody within them is just like you. But once you are part of those paradigms, it's committed themselves to certain things being true by virtue of certain reputations being transferred. And if you've gained a reputation over time, it means that people thought you were right. Even if you were saying wrong things, you believe you're right for the same reasons we all believe we're right. Because people rewarded you with a reputation for being right. So these people seem psychotic from the outside, but individually they're fine. Individually they're rational. Individually they have all the same principles yeah. of following well, Bayes' theorem and, and all the rationality principles of probability theory, they're all following. Sure. But, but the whole network is fucked up. And when that happens, so this is what I, I wanna tr try to get people to break away from what I would say is sort of a reductionistic stuff where you're trying to explain it at the level of a psychotic individual or a psychotic leader or uh, the individuals are rational. No, nobody's irrational individually. Well, psychotic, just really quick, is not the same as psychopath. They are actually fundamentally different. A psychotic person has delusions. Um, a psychopath has no delusions about what they're doing and why they're doing it. They know exactly what they're doing and why they're doing it. Yeah. But I, and I would say yeah. e either of those, you don't, I mean, I don't want to claim that there's not psychopaths, but yeah. I mean, we're, we're, not saying that. we're also not saying all these people are psychopaths. That's not what we're yeah. saying. We're, and we agree with you too. Most psychopaths actually are dumb. They're not very intelligent people. The problem is even though there are a small percentage of the population, there are very intelligent, coercive ones, charming ones, well-off ones, ones in positions of power. And the problem is because we don't understand them and their fundamental difference. And, and I mean, like, neurologically, their fundamental difference between them and us, they have a disproportionate impact on society. And, you know, what I was saying is that, like, they can, they can control the narrative. You, someone like that can get into a position of power, and then they have control of the narrative. And they can get that sort of collective echo chamber to go into a particular direction. But, see, that, see I, I mean, look, yeah. I, I don't so, want to claim that. I think so, occasionally that kind of thing uh, very rarely might happen, but I'm not convinced. I think they're, they're all around in society. You know, they're not just in positions of power. Like a psychologist can be a psychopath, like a teacher yeah. can be a psychopath. You know, it, yeah. it could be, you know, someone you met at the bar and then you start a relationship with them and then they size you up right from the beginning. And then they, they form a personality that they think Mark wants to see. Right. And then yeah. they infiltrate Mark's life and then they date you for 10 years and drain you dry. You know, they didn't break any laws. They just don't have yeah. a conscience and they don't care. They will pretend to care to get stuff. Yeah. But I, but most people mean well, though. I think you're correct. And most people mean well. We get caught in these sort of echo chamber. Like, you know, I thought the blockchain analogy was really interesting as well. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I, I think there's probably a lot of psychopaths or psychot. I mean, I'm, I'm not even. Uh, sure about these distinctions, but I don't think that that's key in understanding these kinds of events or the kinds of evil that happens in the world. It happens, um, you know, there's always a distribution of these, of, 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 of psychopaths out there everywhere, both at the low levels and the high levels. And what makes, and sometimes they're amongst the groups that are in charge and sometimes they're not. Um, I think that really the key though is, is, is the healthy human is yeah. where the problems are because healthy humans are psychopaths. <laughs> we're all psychopaths that's, that's the problem we, the, yeah. we have a pathology we walk in with certain kinds of innate biases which work really well in certain circumstances but when things go wrong in the social network and you end, you end up with a sick network which makes all of the individuals look sick but they're perfectly healthy humans and that's what just humans are and i think the first order that's what we have to understand so that's what i'm my you know i, I started a research institute earlier this year called the free expression group uh, free x it's just about trying to understand these these kinds of events, understanding these social networks, and really taking this very radical view that it, it, it's not about the individuals being psychotic or evil or crazy. 
none of those things matter. It's all about the levels of the group and understanding these emergent phenomena and really having the tools, the physics-like mathematical tools, computer computational tools for understanding how these emergent phenomena happen. Because we're not going to understand, if we can't understand, I mean, it's about free expression and how free expression works in, in social groups, but also how hysteria and mass hysteria spreads and all of these, you know, how, how, how it all works. That's what the, the research, my next research, my seventh book will be about that. Do you think there could be people in power who say want to understand the group mind or the collective mind so they can then deliberately manipulate the group mind or collective mind? Let's well, Potentially, yeah. Uh, I, I'm not. <laughs> so, like they, Bernays, are you familiar with Edward Bernays? Not real. I mean, I've heard him, but I, I, I no. Yeah, so he wrote, he wrote a book called Propaganda. He wrote a bunch of books, actually, but he was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. And, you know, what he was doing in, in his career, one of the things he was doing is he would consult with politicians or with corporations and uh, figure out how to sell their ideas or sell their products, right? And his whole theory was that the group mind, the collective mind, if you understand how it works and functions, you can manipulate it and push it into a particular direction or this direction, that well, direction. Let's, right? let's pivot a little bit. I want yeah. to talk more about COVID. Um, so I, I want to ask... Uh, Dr. Mark, what do you think about these these mandates? These 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 jab mandates. <laughs> I think we know what Mark thinks. About well, him. I just want to hear him. Let him reiterate, though. Yeah, I mean, we kind of hit that. Early. I mean, part of it we hit earlier. Of course, I I, I well, I mean, there's the epidemiological side that they make no epidemiological sense. They don't even make even if it turned out that they were sterilizing. That is, uh, that if you take the vaccination, um, then you don't catch it and and transmit it. Um, then they still don't make sense because the whole point for having um, a program, a vaccination program, is that you in, enhance the number of people who have immunity, whether it's natural or vaccination immunity, within the herd. And so it, it thereby uh, it enhances herd immunity. And if you can get it high enough, it, it really radically reduces transmission. But if instead you push all of the unvaccinated or even if they were allowing the uh, those with natural immunity uh, into society, if they put all of the unvaccinated, not naturally immune people and cluster them into some second class citizens, well, those unvaccinated, not naturally immune are then all going to cluster together. And then you're going to have unchecked transmission through them by their own standards, yeah. which is exactly what you're trying to stop. That's the whole point of having vaccination mm -hmm. programs, right? But and then even, of course, these vaccination, these vaccines are not sterilizing. People still catch it if you're vaccinated. And you still transmit it. And you, in fact, potentially for most of the demographics, you're transmitting it at higher rates than the unvaccinated. They have a higher viral load, right? That was they have a higher viral load and they're, a, they're more asymptomatic, which means they're more likely to be going out there and spreading it. And so they're a double whammy in terms of spread. So it makes it, it doesn't make sense on any logical sense to have the mandates, um, not to mention that, you know, most of these people, the, the risks from COVID are, you know, are, are less if you're 40s or, you know, if you're healthy in 40s and younger, it's safer than flu. And the risks from the vaccines, even if we take them at the most conservative estimates that we can see, they are still much more risky than flu um, vaccines. So why would you go from, a, you know, if I've got a risk of point. 001%, why would I want care to, you know, to, to reduce that by a factor of 10, even if you believe that, you know, the really high efficacy of these vaccines, it just doesn't make any sense at any of these levels. So again, the reason that these things are so strongly pushed for is because of these virtue signals of these signs of being a member, an obedient member of these tribes of the, of the clean. And ultimately, even though no one may be consciously thinking that these are the kinds of forces that select for, that lead to there being these virtue signals 
which are sacrificial in some sense to do, and and you wouldn't do were you not showing membership to to the to the group. Yeah, I've seen very interesting data coming out of the UK mostly uh, in the last couple of weeks. There's um, just articles about how they, there was this one article that showed up back at the end of September and it comes from the times.co.uk. I can just like, let me see if I can share this so that it's on the screen. And I found it very interesting because it's mystery rise in heart attacks from blocked arteries. Health experts have been baffled by the big rise in common and potentially fatal type of heart attack in the west of Scotland. And, you know, Scotland is also one of the UK countries that has been having a uh, very, you know, very big success with their vaccination program. A lot of people getting vaccinated in Scotland. Um, And I just keep seeing these kind of headlines pop up and it's like their level of excess death is at the highest level since January. Um, and it just, this is an, uh, analysis of all cause mortality, but it's just very curious that, you know, these things are cropping up. And then, um, there was another one, let's see if I can find it. And it was, uh, this one, this is new. So this is 83% of COVID-19 deaths were among the fully vaccinated in the past month, according to public health data. And this is like a little, you know, random, you know, news website, but they had the data and the graphs and you can go up here and do the math if people want, but they've been, it's, it seems like the vaccine not only is, is failing, uh, or losing efficacy over time, now they want to get boosters, but that a lot of people who have been vaccinated, and it, it seems like, at least in Scotland and in the UK, that they are ending up with a higher proportion of vaccinated individuals coming down with COVID, uh, ending up in the hospital, and passing away. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and whether that's, you know, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, antibody-dependent enhancement, which is something that the people have been talking about, but it's this idea that the, the fact that the antibodies get produced in response to the illness, but that they um, not only don't do their job, but they prevent actual like effective immune response, which makes paradoxically, it's like if you get the, the, if you get the shot, if in this phenomenon is happening, that you have a uh, more terrible response to the illness than you would, than would you if you were not vaccinated. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm aware of the of the uh, of the efficacy, both being much lower than originally advertised, was advertised at 95 percent. And now it seems to be ranging from 25 percent to 70 percent, depending on at the, even at the start and then waning very quickly over the next six months. And um, and and they also seem to be, uh, you know, there's this immunosuppressed period for a couple of weeks where you could potentially be getting having a greater chance of getting catching covid. And, and having se- severe uh, uh, hospitalization or death. And that is not countered as a vaccinated case because it's not passed, you know, so this, this is, a, you know, a, they're attributing this to COVID when it's in fact really due to the vaccine. And when you're calculating whether a vaccine works, you have to include that. Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't have any good intuitions in terms of the function of a vaccine, these kinds of microbiology stuff. That's certainly not my, my, my area of expertise, but I don't have much confidence right now. Like, what kind of confidence should we have that they're going to uh, treat this appropriately, given that the thing that the first thing that they should have treated appropriately are the excess deaths that occurred in the initial spike in March and April of 2020. We had, and, and I, I'm sort of changing the topic, but I just put it in context here. You had 
in, in dozens and dozens of different countries with different seasonalities or different states with different seasonalities all over the world, an identical utter spike, uh, spike out of season spike, just out of the middle of nowhere, that was only, that is, that there was cases that had been going from through November, December, January, February, COVID had been coursing through, but we weren't measuring it, right? And there was no debt spikes, there was no excess deaths. And then suddenly the WHO announces it, that, hey, there's a pandemic, everybody freaks out. And then suddenly in all of these diverse seasonality places, you have these big spikes that look identical. Those are all hysteria and lockdown deaths. Yep. They are, of course, many of them with COVID because COVID was floating around. These are all, mostly they're hurried deaths. These are very old with comorbidity folks that probably would have been dead within a year, but these are lockdown deaths. These are crimes against humanity that are being blamed on COVID. And it's, it's the most obvious case that you can see. Why should these things be time-locked to the announcement of a pandemic? There's just no other reason. And there's a dozen reasons why when you suddenly change medical protocol and you start fishing things around and you start putting people on, 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 on intubation and you're putting them on sedatives so they can handle in, intubation. And these people are already 80 something years old with three over comorbidities that, you know, that they're suddenly going to have this kind of spike. So if after a year and a half, more than a year and a half, and there's now papers uh, from varieties of authors providing strong evidence that these, these, this is mostly entirely uh, human induced, which Sweden also did. Sweden has overall done really well, but they also panic and have a similar kind of bump because they, they shifted their, their, their people back, put their COVID infected people back into LTC homes. They haven't addressed this. They haven't admitted this. And in some other cases, these excess deaths have just been going all year long with age groups from 15 to 64 with high excess deaths, which are not COVID deaths. And no one is paying attention still. Yeah. And you're a conspiracy theorist if you mention this. So I have, I, you know, I have very little confidence that anybody seems to give a crap or is, is going to give any uh, uh, credence to any of these claims on vaccine harms. It is so, uh, so much of a cult that, um, I, you know, so the question is, how do you break out of this? Right. So this is why, from my point of view, the I, question. I, yeah, this is, I call this the trillion dollar questions for societies is how do you stop, inhibit, unravel mass hysterias like this? Most of the colleagues that, you know, I've been, I'm connected to a bunch of data scientists, different kinds of groups around the world and epidemiological kinds of groups and folks close to me now from the Great Barrington uh, 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 Declaration. And all of these people are epidemiologists and, and scientists and data scientists and things like this. And where I could, you know, as a scientist, I could talk about the data science side really well. I'm, I'm good at with handling data, but I've tried to focus more of my energies, especially on my newsletter and my Science Moment YouTube series on the psychosocialist issues, which very few people are talking about. You know, it's not, so only, you know, so that's where I have something more disproportionately unique to talk about. And ultimately that's what this is because, you know, you can say all the true stuff about the epidemiology and the data science all day long, but if they're just bounces off their brain, you're, it's not, not getting anywhere. So, um, so yeah, I kind of changed the topic, but it, all of these things have had deep harms and the cost benefit analyses uh, uh, were, were completely um, uh, overlooked. In fact, overlooked with prejudice, if you mentioned that you should even do that um, from the start. The hysteria was definitely the major driving factor. And yeah. I, I agree, I think the lockdowns are what created that spike, but God forbid you say that, right? Um, so yeah. I wanted to bring up this interesting story because you talked about, you know, how do we get out of this? And you, you're into the, into the psychosocial aspects of these sorts of things. <laughs> And I read this interesting story. I don't remember what state this took place in, but I think it was in like the 1800s at some point. 
And I read it in Douglas Murray's book, I believe, uh, The Madness of Crowds. I don't know if you've read that, but it's a really interesting I mean, I, I, it's hard to read the whole book if you yeah. try to, you know, it's, it's not the kind of thing you just read through, but the preface is great, but yeah. it is well, easy to read, but yeah. Yeah, it, that was, it, I liked that. That was an enjoyable book. I did finish that. I read that a couple summers ago. Anyway, there was a story he told in the book and he was telling it in relation to social media, really, that, you know, he was describing cancel culture. And how something gets revealed from 10 years ago and everyone just jumps on board and the, you know, the truth can travel all the way around the world before, sorry, the lie can travel all the way around the world before the truth even has time to catch up. People just run with it. So he told the story of an entire town that ran away. So someone ran through the town one day and they heard a rumor, I guess, that the dam nearby, which was miles away from the town, had broken and that the water was flooding and it was coming. So he was just running through the town like, guys, the dam broke, the dam broke, we gotta go, we gotta go, the water's coming. One other person joins him, another person joins him, then another person joins him. And all of a sudden, the whole town is literally running away. And no one thought to stop and ask, hey, is the water actually coming? How far is the dam from here? How high of, of the ground are we on? Like, are we actually in any danger here? No, people reacted hysterically. And the more people they saw running away, the more people joined to run away to the point where basically the entire town ran away. That's the first cool. people who ran, obviously ran furthest. And by the time they were miles and miles away, they start to figure out like, oh, maybe we're not actually in danger. So they returned to the town, everyone's gone. And then slowly the town starts to trickle back in it becomes a taboo subject for generations. The whole town just kind of collectively decides to just not talk about it. And they just act like it didn't happen because they were all just so collectively embarrassed that they, that they fell for this. And yeah. I just thought it was such an interesting story because when I read it, even though he was describing like cancel culture and that sort of thing, I immediately thought of this stuff. I thought of the lockdowns. I thought of the hysteria over the virus, how basically it was just, you know, the media and the propaganda arms screaming, the, the dam broke and the flood is coming. And the whole yeah. town ran away. And now people are starting to trickle back in and they're starting to realize like, oh, we overreacted. But people, I think many are too embarrassed to say anything, to admit that, wow, I got played. I fell for this shit. And I think that's kind of why this is going on as long as it's going on is there's a lot of really ashamed, embarrassed people out there still who aren't speaking out yet, perhaps, because, you know, maybe they just they, they don't know how to admit that, damn, we all got played, you know? Well, in some sense, but the, I mean, and this is in that case, it was a really obvious case where just, you know, nothing came. So it was yeah. it was really clear that people who had claimed it was coming, yeah. it just didn't come and there was no buts about it. In this case, um, the, a lot of these things like this, um, once you're, you know, there, there really is a virus, um, there really are deaths, and they can keep keep this going for potentially a long period of time. It, 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 it is true that the people like Ding, you know, this Eric Ding or whatever, and all these different people, these Panic Brothers, have gained so much reputation, right, during this process. They've gone from, you know, a thousand followers to a million followers or whatever. Now, you could say the one way to describe this, and, and this gets back to the earlier conversation, is to say that they don't want to uh, admit being wrong because they'll lose their reputation and be embarrassed. But the other way to, to realize is that one, the fact that they've gained that much reputation, they have all of these people that you know, bow to them, is evidence to them, and it's actually good evidence, that they're right. Well, I was, I was referring more to the people who have started to realize 
by now. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, obviously, yeah, there's always people on the fence that, that and, they are beginning to wake yeah. up. But sometimes the people, it's very common to, you know, to, to look at some of these people, our opponents, and say they get it now. They really get it now. And now they're just protecting their reputations. Usually that's not the case. Unfortunately, they really, by virtue of the network that they're in and the fact that they've gained so much reputation, that has only doubled them and tripled and quadrupled them down because it actually is good evidence that yeah. you've been right. If, if your entire network... Yeah, getting it's rewarded. Cool. It's like validation. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's validated them. It's made it worse. So they're actually they believe ever more than they ever have that they're right. And the narrative is really it, it, all of the things so far have been explained within the narrative in this way. And they've gained reputation throughout, which just shows that they're right. Now, obviously, there are some people. And the real only reason I'm doing this is because I'm not trying to change those folks. I can't change them. They're basically brainwashing their narrative. They're not. But there's a whole, there's two different classes of people. There's a people that are on our side already in their bones, but they don't have the confidence or the education to know how to argue about it. And so I'm giving those folks the confidence, which is actually the more important part, as well as the tools to know how to argue to their friends and families and their employer, whatever. And then there's, a, I don't know how big category of folks that are more on the fence. They didn't really, they just don't, they hadn't fallen either way. And then we're, you guys and me are able to pull those guys too. But I don't think you or you or I are changing the folks that are in the narrative. And I don't think it's because the folks in the narrative ever are going to know they're wrong. They yeah. literally might never know they're wrong. I gave ever. up on them, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. and I've, I've said it before on here, but yeah. our goals have very much switched to just kind of gathering the people together who are free thinkers and open-minded and willing to discuss these things and pre to prepare for the shit storm that is clearly heading our way. Um, yeah. People who are still immersed in the lie after God, this amount of time, I don't really know what to say to those people, to be honest. Like, I don't think there really is much you can say to those people, no. get them to come on board. You mentioned, you know, to, you know, the confidence thing, like people having the confidence to argue about these things. It's more than that, man. It's courage. It's courage yeah. too. It takes a lot of courage to come out and to, to go against the grain, to speak out against what the mainstream culture is saying. And especially when we're seeing a lot of the, you know, the consequences people are facing for doing that stuff, yeah. it makes other people hesitant who may want to, and then they don't, you know? And I think it is important for people to see folks like you or folks like us speaking because it helps give them that, that courage, you know? Yeah, we have uh, definitely, it's like a, it's a large problem with, with people not really understanding what's going on. And we've got these like competing, I, I, you know, I don't hesitate to call them narratives, but they're, you know, basically lying about the disease 24 seven and any discussion of, you know, accurate facts like, like the IFR or like the inefficacy of the jabs or, you know, who's actually ending up dying and going to the hospital. It becomes this like very bizarre, bizarro world where you've got these like two competing, like we have, you know, President Biden just recently was on the television telling everybody this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And he's really like hitting that point hard. And it goes back to what you were saying about them referring to us as like you know unclean or yeah. you know less than because you know yeah. and, and there's just no nuance yeah. there's no room we're, for we're people. not people anymore well, we're the unvaccinated but there's there's no room for people who have medical conditions that preclude them from getting vaccinated you know like i have a autoimmune condition i have celiac disease so that automatically disqualifies me from from getting vaccination 
Um, but there's no, there's, there's barely any, uh, you know, room to wiggle there. Like the New York city mandates, for example, don't have any exemptions for people that have medical exemptions or medical issues or reason. And then there's a whole class of people that are morally, morally and ethically opposed because of, you know, religious or spiritual or just, you know, th their plain choice. And we should allow for that because this is America where we should have the freedom to choose if we're going to take an experimental medical in intervention or not. And the other thing I thought, I thought funny is that, you know, the lockdowns themselves were a sort of experimental medical intervention mm -hmm. that we, a lot of us did not have a choice about, you know, we didn't put it to a vote. There wasn't a law passed, you know, in many cases, it was just governors and mayors declaring this is to be so. And I found that so antithetical to the idea of America and the idea of, you know, democracy of being represented. It just, it just seems so mind-blowing to me that this is where we're at now in, in 2021. And like the very fundamental idea of being able to speak your mind and go against the grain and say unpopular things, it's like you, you can get you know, canceled or have your entire online presence removed because you're just, you know, you're, you're expressing ideas that go against whatever the establishment narrative uh, is of the day. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is something we haven't talked about yet. This is, that imagine that we had free expression and free speech um, across all of social media and Google wasn't deep, you know, deboosting de the information, all the kinds of it would be bad enough. This situation would be bad enough because we'd still be, despite all of our free expressive voices out there, be barely being able to get through to the people who are so misinformed and are calling us uh, engagers in misinformation. Right. The people who are calling us uh, misinformers are the people who believe that there's an that the infection fatality rate is 38 percent. This is when they polled Australians. The average Australian thought it was a 38 percent IFR. Oh Jesus, yeah. great! It's like they're they're literally like in a different reality in their head. Right. Yeah. They thought the United States thought that last July that nine percent of the population had already died of COVID. Wow. Right. So <laughs> these are the people who are calling us misinformed, and then. For, so, so that would be bad enough that we'd be, but the other thing that we haven't talked about so far is just that, no, we're in a world where to even mention that they're a thousand times wrong, they're, they're really orders of magnitude off. We will be, we are canceled and we are censored. We are suspended. We are kicked off of the venues, all of the venues um, from being even able to speak. So we have a double, you know, it, it, you know it, it's almost impossible to make the, to, to, to do what we're doing given these kinds of constraints and handicaps. Um, and so that's, that's really, you know, FreeX was, my FreeX, FreeX.group, FreeX, free expression group was really designed to focus on free expression because all of these mass hysteria things are, are concerned how free expression and the emotional expressions are key because the way that reputation gets transferred is because I bet reputation when I, the, the, to the extent that I'm disagreeable during kinds of arguments and things like this. If I'm very polite, to, oh, you might be right, never mind, like, like two, two uh, chipmunks or whatever, I'm not putting in much social capital. But it's by through these kinds of how free expression works and how it works to uh, 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 determine reputation transfers underlies how all of these social networks work and reputation networks work and how um, narratives work and so forth. So, and so right now, uh, not only are there's two different levels of fucked upness. One is that we have uh, these social networks are not just a tribe. They're connected uh, worldwide, connected through social media, which is attempting to be even if they weren't censoring us, 
is attempting to be kind of like a social network, but of course it doesn't have the normal uh, uh, human social kinds of interactions where we're emotionally expressing ourselves and the bets are happening by virtue of that. And people are able to observe it and watch and gossip and blockchain, the normal kinds of things that would happen in a tribe that kind of work pretty well are all messed up, which is why mass hysteria happened. And then, um, even, and then of course now from top down, even government uh, uh, coordinated with social media and big tech, is that they're just explicitly trying to censor. So yeah. the, the entire ability to have a conversation and move towards the truth, which is how science works and how civil society moves towards the truth is being destroyed yeah. um, through this process. Yeah, I found it very interesting that the argument being, you know, the pro-censorship argument sort of being like, uh, they're private companies, they can do what they want. But then on the other hand, you've got Jen Psaki coming out and very publicly saying that they're advising these private companies on what to do and to work harder to tamp down disinformation and, and all this stuff. And it's like, well, if the, if the government is now coming in to these private companies and telling them how to run their business, it's no longer a private company. They can do what they want. And even, I don't even like that argument. I find that whole thing atrocious, first of all. But now we, we have direct evidence that the Biden administration has been influencing or advising these tech companies on, you know, like they, telling them to work harder to squash, you know, disinformation. Um, and we have people... And they're telling them that and anybody who's banned from uh, uh, one social media should be banned from all. She, she even yes. said there's no sense in banning from. No, you should be banning from all. That's a, just a total blacklist yeah. across yeah. all of them. They're recommending. Yeah. And how does that not activate First Amendment issues? It's just like it's unbelievable yeah. that they're yeah. just pushing this idea. And it's you know, also the most anti-scientific thing I can think about. It's incredibly you know, anti-scientific. Like you can't even have an open discourse about these scientific issues right and then the reason they sort of like their their justification for that is that you have some people who are just too stupid to be able to sift through the information themselves which has been the case forever well it's (laughs) been the case forever number one and number two it's it's not an effective argument because there are many people who aren't you know too stupid to sift through the information and you know me may argue that we have a right to sift through all the available information and and to to make a choice and to comment on it and to say whatever the hell we want about it even if we're wrong especially when it concerns you know uh, an experimental intervention like a government lockdown which literally destroys economies you know i was or or something like injecting yourself with a foreign substance you don't really know what the hell it is we both we both lost uh financial opportunities because of the lockdown we moved down uh to florida from new York City. Um, you know, I was doing a Airbnb type of thing and also tutoring there. Daniel was a substitute teacher. And so we both lost all of our businesses basically due to the lockdowns and had to, you know, upend our lives. And that was one of the reasons we started yeah. podcasting. I'm from New Jersey, actually, because I wanted to comment on that really quick because you're born in New Jersey, correct? Mark? Yeah, I was born. I didn't spend there long. So yeah. yeah. Where were you born in New Jersey, though? I'm just curious. Uh, Livingston. Okay. Okay. Trent, it's basically, uh, I can't remember what's near. It's uh, Trenton? No, yeah. uh, Newark. It's basically a suburb of Newark. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'm from um, Elizabeth. Dan so. was a long time Jersey I'm boy. I'm born and raised in New Jersey, so that's my, that's my heart. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So look, the way that science works, and you know, I, I make fun of the science, and I've got a whole, you know, <laughs> tons and tons of science moment videos on uh, making fun of this, this notion that the science works the way they seem to think it does. So, you know, nearly every publication in science is wrong. 
and deeply wrong, you know, like ridiculously wrong as we look back at them. But the way that we handle that is not by saying, oh, we found out that you're wrong. Uh, let's delete it, expunge it, expunge it from the history of, you know, no, you don't do that. The only cases where they occasionally label something as if it was purposeful fraud, you know, sometimes and they'll, they'll pull it from the journal, which of course now is happening anytime that anybody publishes anything that's against the narrative, all of the academia attacks it and says it has to be pulled, it has to be pulled, it has to be pulled for political reasons, right? Or whatever, these, whatever current political, COVID political reasons. Science doesn't work that way. Science works because you have paper after paper, which is wrong. And we step on those as the rungs and the ladder that then move us towards the right. And the same thing, and that's a, that's, that's a microcosm of how society works. It's the same exact thing. Science is a social phenomenon. It's a reputation network of folks who are trying to come up with the truth. And then it's put into the, into the blockchain, so to speak, of the history. And then we get built on, it gets built on. It's yeah. all part of the history. If same were, thing for all were, of the, yeah. You erase on. all of the mistakes. And if you erase all of the wrong, you right. know, you're, you're not gonna understand how you arrived at a more clear understanding scientifically of being right. It's like, like you said, it's the rungs. It's, it's the ladder you climb up to, to get closer to a more accurate view of things. So yeah. wow, how could you just erase all of that, you know? Right, yeah. right. Yeah, it's, it's, so we're, we're dealing with the, and, and the, I mean, we're dealing with the, the, the most frightening totalitarianism uh, that anyone like us in the West have, has ever had to uh, deal with. In fact, I don't think any of us really understood what totalitarianism was until we saw it firsthand. Um, I think, you know, we had our own ideas of what it would be like, and I still, even, but, but the sense in which author, that totalitarianism is really your neighbors, it's your mom, potentially, it's your sister, it's your brother-in-laws, it's all of your friends at work, it's everybody all around you. It's not just top down. It's just, you feel it everywhere you go, that there's a, they're, they're, they're judging you, they look at you as unclean, they wanna push you out of society. And we, you know, my wife who's from Iran, and you know, these, these ladies there are just pissed off constantly half of the ladies there that want to be able to just take a freaking hijab off of their head but if they're on the street and they're just a curls coming down some man or a woman on the street's going to attack them because too much of their hair is showing these are not people that work for the government they're just basically mask karens the same version of a mask karen in iran and it's the exact same version of a karen Right. And they're unclean women. They're whores. You know, they're using like words like the word for whore in that language because a little bit of a lock is showing. And it is impossible to unravel that kind of thing. And imagine here, it's the same stuff. It's the exact same ingredients. It just happens to be called the science rather than Islam or rather than ethnic Nazi bullshit or communist China revolutionary stuff. Here it's the science, and it really is scientists using sci- complicated measurements. It really does look freaking scientific compared to the like Islamic rule books of all this bullcrap that they're supposed to follow. Imagine how hard it's going to be to push back on the science when it really does look like science, and there really is a virus. Whereas in Iran, the women are infectious metaphorically, yeah, that's and Jews, Jews are metaphorically infectious and asymptomatically. So you don't have to always look infectious, look like a Jew, or look like a woman who's a, who's a whore. Just the fact that she behaves in certain ways. If you're a middle class or upper middle class, or if you're an academic in communist China, you're infectious. And if you know them, you potentially are already infected. Those are metaphorical infect. The infection metaphors come up in all of these societies because they tap into the human disgust sense and make 
and, and you makes you want to make them an, on the out group, makes you push them away as disgusting. Here, they really are. Jordan Peterson has also talked about this yeah. quite often himself. Yeah, that disgust mechanism. And right. apparently Hitler was like a germ freak from, from what I recall. Yeah. But here it really is an infection. Yeah. They really are infectious. It really is science. It's just shitty politicized science. We have a lot harder time to undo this because it has the veneer of reality rather than just a metaphor. That's a very good point. Very yeah, good point. I tend to think of it as almost like, I call it scientism, at least in my head. That's my word for basically uh, a dogmatic uh, system that uses the veneer of science. But actually what it is, is it's like a religion. It's, it's a cult. Uh, you know, yeah. jokingly refer to, you know, the people that are obsessed with COVID as branch COVIDians. Yeah. You're not the only yeah. one. But yeah, it's, it's you know, it's a, it's a thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I just, I find it really strange that, you know, people that are, you know, theoretically anyway, versed in the idea, the concept of science, the, the idea of the scientific method of, of transparent and open communication and, and peer review and all these ideas, that they would, you know, endorse this 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 dogma this this weird distorted almost caricature of science yeah. uh, it, it's very disturbing it's creepy because you you see some very intelligent people you know supporting this stuff too and you know i know yep. certain people in my own life personally who are pretty smart educated people and it's just <laughs> no questions at all like nothing yeah. you know so it's it's really quite shocking to see it in your personal life but then, yeah, all the experts you see in society who are supposed to be these really highly educated right. people, like you can't see through this shit. And maybe some of them can, and they just don't want to say anything, you know? But I think a lot of them are just, they, they are sort of indoctrinated, yes, into a yeah. like mentality. I make the joke that these you know, academics and journalists, have, they've spent their lives making fun of religion and that they fell for the first death cult that swept through. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it really is a death cult. It's it a is. death cult. They because if you, cold, if you crazy. subserve, if all life is subserved to the, to, to reduce one disease, that's a death cult. You know, there's no other cost benefit. It's just reduce one disease at the expense of everything else in life, all of the other risks and benefits. That's a death cult. In fact, it's led to just drastically rem, uh, 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 excess deaths, uh, wrecked societies, developing world gone backwards. Um, it's a death cult. Now, the interesting thing is the other thing that death too, and and a sort of messed up societal relationship with death yeah. now, like where we're we're like almost acting like it's just it shouldn't happen. People just shouldn't die, you know. Yeah, and the other yeah you know, the other thing that that joke hints at is that, and I don't know if this is true. I suspect it's true, but I would love to see measurements. Folks that are religious already have the, a religion that builds their head. It's already kind of a, you know, it's it, it's already this. Um, this cult-like thing. It's, I, I give religions more credit than a cult because it's been selected over time and mm -hmm. has all of these structures that may do something to the brain. They Have they been somewhat insulated either because it's just this feeling of having a belief in God or because they're already part of this massive social network of a, a organized religion that provides a different kind of network that they were in. So they were much less likely to be basically sitting in CNN's audience constantly like someone who didn't, you know, or, or an academics or just surrounded by uh, the same echo chamber. I suspect that the average religious person, truly religious person that goes to church and so forth, um, was much more insulated from this mass hysteria. That's and, a good point it, too. Yeah. And it could itself be one selective advantage to just religions in the first place, that they helped provide some kind of grounding for preventing people from just taking, you know, following the first death cult that swept through. So yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and you, yeah. you look at how much of the resistance too has come from the, the Christian conservative side, the polit- political spectrum. I think what yep. you're saying makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. yeah, it does seem that we have a misrepresentation, at least in terms of people that are like kind of obsessed with the masks and, and getting the jabs and you know trusting the science, that those tend to be more like atheist style, like people that are more atheist or agnostic. Yeah. Yeah, so it'd be hard to, you know, proper experiment would be to, you know, because atheists also tend to hang out in different groups. And right. so their they're, they're social network is totally different. And so is it due to the social network or is it due to the uh, installation of certain kinds of principles? And how could you control for those two things? But I think one or both of those may, may, be, uh, may be doing. Well, it reminds me of Nietzsche, too, you know, like when, when he said God is dead. You know what what he meant was like what was going to replace it after you kill god right, right? what is going to fill that void and yeah. that's what happened with the bolshevik revolution but it's sort of a similar thing now what we're seeing and probably why a lot of people who aren't religious or atheists and now have that void well the the scientism or the covid cult has become the thing to fill that emptiness in there and i think a lot of people are just power tripping too man i think they've never felt they had any control over anything ever in their lives. And now all of a sudden they get to like tell people what to do and, and, you know, feel virtuous for doing it. And I think that's also at play here as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it definitely seems like that a lot of there, there was a lot of excess mortality due to the stress of the lockdown style situation messes your immune system up. And also, you know, project Veritas did that, that release where they, you know, they investigated CNN and they released, you know, showing that they were really just trying to hammer that point about the numbers. Like, can we get those, can we put, make those numbers higher? Like, and it just, it blows my mind that they really weren't sort of like held to task. If anything, you know, project Veritas was punished because they lost access to, I think it was Twitter the next day. Yeah. Uh, very shortly after they, well, they, they were actually already yeah. gone from Twitter by the time that Charlie Chester leak dropped, but James O'Keefe was, mm-hmm. still, was still tweeting. From and then the thing. following day, Twitter removed him, which if anything should have confirmed to everyone that what was being said was true. But not only that, it demonstrated there was a direct collusion between Twitter and CNN, you know, yeah. but that Charlie Chester story should have been like the biggest story this year. It's still crazy how many people I know don't even know about it at all. You know, well, they're all part of the trusted news initiative that they jointly decided to group together all of these social media networks and, and all the mainstream media and the TNI, the trusted news initiative, where they, you know, joining together to combat misinformation and agree on fact checking and so forth. So you've got the whole notion of independent media you know, vying with the one another and trying to, is just gone. They've just joined together as, as one in, in one pact, basically with the TNI. It's very, it's, it's just very disturbing, very strange. And uh, I guess the only way we can really combat it is to just keep expressing ourselves in as many, you know, avenues as are available. Well, we got to stick up for each other too. I think that's another big aspect, but I think the tides will change the most when more of the people who got the shot already start to resist and say, well, Hey, I did do this, but I don't like that. My friend here can't do this or can't do that. I think that's wrong. So I'm going to boycott this establishment. I'm going to boycott that. I'm not going to go there, even though I got the shot, because my friend can't go with me. And if, if more of that happened, perhaps this would change. Well, I think we're starting but... to see it, though. I mean, have you heard about the In-N-Out Burger controversy, Mark? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I have. Yeah. Yeah. So I found it really interesting that they basically like in and out their corporate, you know, they basically came out and was like, we're not going to be the vaccine police. And all of a sudden, you know, our friend Paul put, uh, we had Paul on the show a couple episodes ago, <laughs> but he went to his local in and out burger because he's over in California. And he showed that there were just cars lined up yeah. down the block and he went inside and it was packed and there were, you know, they did not, they did not ask for his, his card and, and very few well, people. Well, he was joking like, too, because he was in there like recording himself while drinking his shake and he's just like, they're not worried. <laughs> we're, we're in the middle of a health crisis don't they realize it why aren't they worried? i mean <laughs> i mean uh, they, i mean th- that's it it's great that it happened and it's great they're getting pr because they we want to ex- we want to get their their courage out there so that it gives others courage but apparently in san francisco the way the story was packaged was that they were the only restaurant or only business that bucked it in all of san francisco huh. so you put it <laughs> you put it in context and it's like oh well that's that's a little disappointing, right? Yeah. It's the same with um, New York. True. Same with New York. Yeah. We had Max Public House and we had Anarchy Tattoo Studios. And for a while, those were really the only two places in New York City that resisted in any way, shape, or form. Now there are more places, I think, putting that sign up on their window and they're starting to finally join Danny Presti. But that guy lost everything, man. His business is still closed. You know, he's got two kids to raise. And he put it all on the line to just stay open and to, to tell the system to go screw themselves. So, yeah, well, hopefully we see more of that, uh, you know, in the coming weeks and months, I, I do feel like, I don't know if you feel like this, Mark, uh, that the tide is somewhat turning that we're now at this point, you know, as the efficacy of the shots is waning as more and more people are talking about alternative treatments, you know, like, uh, ivermectin and like monoclonal antibodies, you know, whether or not those things are, you know, super effective or not, it does seem that they are available and people are using them. Doctors are prescribing them. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I just saw was this tweet from Robert Malone, where he said that they, uh, the NIH has updated their, um, their guidance to now include treatment guidelines uh, about ivermectin. So now they're talking about things like dosage, common side effects. So that, like that just, and it just happened basically that he updated, you know, they have updated, they did a, he called it a silent, silent update because they're not mm-hmm. really talking about it. Of course it. they're not. Of course they're not because then yeah. it reveals that they were kind of full of shit. Well, and, it, and it's, it's very strange too, because at the same time you've got, you know, Don Lemon and Sanjay Gupta going on CNN and continuing to push this like weird distorted lie about horse dewormer. And it's like, yes, the drug can be used as a livestock dewormer, but there is a people there version, people versions that, like other things that is prescribed, <laughs> you know, and is, you know, right. the quality control standards yeah. and nobody should be taking things that are, you know, obviously meant for animals, of course. Uh, but they were just making this, this they muddied the water there so bad that it, it just it strikes me like how are we supposed to be able to determine whether or not the drug is potentially effective when you've got major you know media personalities with millions of viewers just muddying the water and yeah. you know don lemon he's not he doesn't have a background in science yeah <laughs> but they're, they're allowed to say these things and it's not medical misinformation all of a sudden like i said they're doctors yeah and youtube youtube yeah. pumps them up <laughs> to the, the top of the page yeah. you know they get they get all the algorithmic love meanwhile you know like anybody who dares to say the opposite just gets you know they get a little shadow banned a little down regulated sometimes they'll kick you off the platform yeah. It got, I think it was to show, though, that like when you're up against some really powerful propaganda, how can you even really properly do science? 
you know? Yeah. Well, if, if you're in the environment like that, you, you can't, you know, and as we saw with like Lobachevsky's story, like the, if you are really threatening the established order with your scientific research, they, they'll come for you. They'll break your door down and they'll, you know, make sure that you're not able to communicate whatever it is you want to communicate. Well, we're not there yet. Thank God. Very happy. Well, in terms of, in terms of, you know, having some kind of optimism, I, I have some cautious optimism. Some of the places where I see optimism is how the neighbors of Sweden um, seem to be following Sweden's suit. They've dropped all of the things. Uh, we have in the United States, places like Texas and Florida, and even my own state of Ohio has been better than both of those places for the most part, historically, even though no one talks about us because it's just Ohio. But we haven't done what now Texas and Florida are doing on these, uh, you know, with actual formal regular formal laws, which are preventing mask mandates and preventing vax mandates. So they're really on the leading edge here. I find those as great signs. And even if, even if I don't have much confidence that California or New York and some of these other places are going in the right direction, federalism, which I never thought would be, I always would have defended federalism, but I never really thought of it as something to defend us as a protection for mass hysteria. Yeah. I always thought about it as protecting us from Trump and Biden, you know, and, you know, uh, evil dictators doing that. No, it's, it's really just as useful or even more important to have these because different cultures end up in their own way in different kinds of cities and you want them to be able to just move forward and then be a good example or a bad example experimentally to the rest of the nation. Uh, you know, most other countries don't have that ability and they're just fucked. Whereas we can go to Florida now. Yeah. We can go to America, Texas now. America's unique in that position, I think. Yeah. It's, it's different per place here. It's not like they can just like collectively federally you know mandate all the stuff i'm sure they could try but yeah. yeah it would be difficult to do and it's not and i don't think it's just you know like if, if DeSantis gets voted out um i think mostly the reason that florida is the way it is 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 culturally yeah the people there overall i mean of course there's, there's lots of variability within there culturally they happen to be the kind that might be unwilling to, to do anything other than they're doing so it's not just that he's going to get out and his executive orders or his things will be overturned i think some of these the variability in the cultures then can hopefully be predictive of the way it will be for the next 10 years and this uh can give someone confidence okay i, I can move in fact i'm my wife and i are looking to move there or at least looking to start moving in that direction come, on, come to florida yeah. <laughs> join us no, I, I agree i think collectively because the culture here is the way it is is one of the reasons we even saw those executive orders happen to begin with you know DeSantis does have to appeal to his base and yeah. i think for the most part he understands the majority of floridians are very independent free thinking type people um another factor is is armed you know when you think about how many people here are armed and how many people in texas are armed i think that's one of the factors that prevents the government from pushing it to a certain level but also yeah. the people being armed makes them have i think more balls to yeah. to just screw it we're not going to comply you know it makes them i think yeah. feel more confident in their in their descent whereas you go to places like new york or new jersey which locks down heavily very 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 few citizens there are armed people are yes you can get guns but it's very difficult especially in the city oh almost impossible yeah you wouldn't even want to yeah, it's hardly worth even a try because one mistake, you could probably be in one mistake in these fine rules, you could end up in prison for 10 years for having the wrong kind of gun in the wrong kind of place packaged in the wrong way in your house or, you know, your apartment or whatever. Yeah, um, in New York City, it was, uh, it's like it's five year mandatory minimum if for possession of a legal weapon. 
And it, in order to have a legal weapon in any way, at least in New York City, you have to go through a $500 application process uh, with the NYPD where they, you know, do a background check on you. Yeah. And then they decide, you know, ultimately, and the, the law is very clear. They can, for any reason, they can deny you, um, you know, the right to, to own a firearm. Similar. And they get to keep your $500. So it's That's just like, <laughs> it was ridiculous. Jersey, you need someone to vouch for you. Except, I was, yeah. Yeah. Well, isn't that, that's so strange to yeah, me. Too. I think you need one or two people to vouch for you and they have to be in some kind of position. And like, like these are clear, these are like clear that. infringements on our second amendment rights. Right? Okay. Yeah. It just, yeah. it, well, I guess it's just become cultural and, and that's why the culture is so important because when things like that become cultural, they can, you know, the people voluntarily cede their rights, you know, whether it's, you know, your First Amendment right or your Second it's Amendment It's easier rights. to do it, I think. It's easier to just fold and to not feel ballsy enough to be like, well, no, no, I'm not doing that. Sorry. And I think that's why Florida opened earlier and Texas opened earlier. And they were like, all right, we're done with this shit. That's it. Moving on. Yeah. It's very yeah. So, yeah. so I, I think those are signs of optimism that those things are happening. And, um, but, but the, the other part of that paragraph that I was going to say was that, look, I'm often, you know, we, you and I are parts of communities online. So like in the beginning, back in March of 2020, I was all alone. I didn't know anybody that thought like me and I felt like a crazy person, right? And slowly I got to, I connected with other folks like you and just in coalesced over time. And so now we've found a lot of each other over a year and a half. We've got whole institutes and devoted to fighting this. And so are having coalesced and sort of organized together can give us a false sense of us winning because we just know poor people like us. And now we're part of a network that's encouraging us and feeling like we're, but we may not, I mean, I think we are making progress, but I don't, a lot of it can seem, it can be difficult to not trick yourself into thinking that that growing to know all these other people that have the same view is itself as if I've convinced you and you've, no, we like, we already had the, we found each other. That didn't change the numbers, right? We just happened to find each other and that's going to be helpful but it's it, 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 probably not. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. So I, it, it can, I think we have to be careful that we're not under a, a, an illusion ourselves uh, because people keep, I remember when Alex Berenson in April of, of 2020 said it's over folks because of, I can't remember what happened at the time. And it's like, and I was like, dude, it's not over. It's not going to be over for a long time. They're never going to admit they're wrong. They're going to double down because they, you know, there's all this reputation at stake, not because they consciously realize that that's why they're anyway. And so, and he's, you know, a couple other times he said it's over. I'm not sure that this is going to be over for a long time. These things, as Charles McKay in the Madness Crowd's book says in the, you know, the preface, these things, um, it's often rivers of blood, which is what occur, has to occur for these things to undo themselves. And, and I'm, I'm hoping that it hasn't come to that. But more and more around the world, you see, you know, civil strife and, uh, and the kinds of language that they have towards the unvaccinated and towards the way that they treat me and you. If you choose not to wear a mask or you push back on masks, it is a kind of hatred. They really think that you deserve what you get. You shouldn't be able to go to the hospital. They believe you're spreading it and that you're infecting and killing people. These kinds of beliefs are super dangerous, right? They're the stuff of democides and genocides. Um, democide being the general term for when, when governments are involved in, in, in coordinating or, or uh, uh, deaths amongst you know, great numbers, um, rather than just genocide, which is, is, doesn't you know, handle the cases of Soviet Union and China and so forth. These are really dangerous stuff. So I, I, I'm not yet convinced um, that that this is has turned. And I don't know. I wish I could tell you on the basis of some kind of scientific modeling or understand that it's, you know, how long, one year, 20 years. I really don't know. But I, I see it 
the other side is just as deep as they were a year ago, if not deeper. And I, I think I it agree. happened fast. I think I, by mid-March mid -March of 2020, it had happened like this. It already was there. And, and I'm not sure if they've even deepened or not deepened, but it, I, it, was, it was already there and it's not coming off. And I think it's deepened to the extent that there's now a long narrative and that to undo that is even, you have to un, you say, well, then what explains all of this stuff that I believe that I've got, right? I've learned all of this stuff for the last year and a half and I've raised a reputation. You need to go back and sort of re-explain all of that stuff and how I was wrong for a whole year and a half. It's really hard to do. Yeah. Um, so I think we're, we've got a, a long fight uh, for us. And uh, luckily for me, I have less life to live, you know, so you're going to have to deal with the shit more than <laughs> I agree, though. I think it's going to probably get worse before it gets better. I, I also <laughs> hope it doesn't come to rivers of blood to undo this, but study history and you will see that that is very possible and things can change very, very quickly overnight. I don't think people even understand just how fast things can change. You know? Yeah, what strikes me is that if this is how we react to uh, minor respiratory illness with an IFR of less than 1%, what happens in the potential future scenario of an actual plague of, of a real serious disease, which is killing 5, 10, 20% of the infected? I mean, if this is what we do when there's, you know, less than 1%, like just imagine how crazy the people and, and the authorities will yeah. get if there's a very, very serious plague. It'll be like martial law, basically. Oh, and that, that's, that's really kind of like, that was been my, my major sort of wake up call throughout this whole thing is that, you know, we, if, if it's this bad now, just imagine how yeah. crazy they could get. And we've set the precedent now. And then the other so, thing also I wanted to mention was that uh, Sebastian Hafner ha wrote this book. He was a uh, German uh, law student in uh, Germany in the like early 20, early to mid 20th century. And his book, uh, Defying Hitler, basically charts how um, society progresses through the stages of going from, you know, a normal, happy-go-lucky, successful society in order to going to a complete totalitarian dictatorship where they're taking, you know, a certain portion of the population yeah. and sending them to death camps. It's a great book because it's, it's written from the perspective of a German citizen in Germany who was German, who saw it all happening, didn't like Hitler, didn't agree with him, but also didn't really know what to do as a regular regular everyday average person up against this huge massive you know but the big the big so. takeaway from that that i just wanted to mention is that it's it's a slow boil it's a slow process and you know it, and it's just like history like things happen in history over three to five ten twenty years and we tend to see ourselves removed from that process because we're just living day to day um, we're in the buildup. Yeah, but, we're, we're still, you know, we could be in this pre-period. But, you know, even though there is a buildup, there are still like certain instances or events where all of a sudden there's a buildup, there's a buildup, there's a buildup, and then it peaks and then something happens and immediately things are changed. You know, like the buildup to World War One or World War Two. Yeah, like, you can predict those pe black people before that that stuff played out people had no idea the horrors that they were going to live through in the early 20th century. And they had no idea just how quickly things could change, how fast people can just go along with all this stuff. And the next thing you know, you know, they're putting bodies in ovens and stuff. So I think people just need to remember that that things can change incredibly quickly for the better or for the worse. You know, like look at like, I don't know, like Franz Ferdinand, things like that, like just certain events that are hard to predict, like an assassination or, or a major conflict in the city. 
you know, and we're already seeing some of that stuff on the ground in places like Portland. Like we're already seeing conflict on the streets politically revolving around this stuff, but also the identity woke stuff and all of that. So like people don't think a civil war can happen, but I'm like, man, be careful, man. Be careful. Don't just assume that that that's not where this could go because it could. And I'm seeing more and more people talk about divorce, you know, and secession and that that sort of stuff. I'm seeing more and more talk about that online. You know, well, yeah. saying like how I, we share a country with these people. And I understand. I don't even blame anyone for having those thoughts now and, and asking those questions because I think they're legitimate questions. How do you share a country with people like this who want to cast us out completely? Yeah. Yeah, this is one of them. I, I had written a, a, a Twitter thread back in uh, April of 2020 on 15 reasons lockdowns were never common sense. I saw that one. And, and number 15, the last of them was was sort of making fun of uh, Nassim Taleb um, and, you know, he, he and, and all of the folks. The Black, Black Swan, Swan. The Black Swan event. Yeah, the argument is that, well, you know, a pandemic has a small but not negligibly small chance of being so bad that you just have to just just pretend that that's going to happen and, and forget about all of the other uh, potential costs, because it's if it was so bad, it was but the problem is that the things that have always killed and destroyed humans and societies are the stuff that other humans do. Those are the stuff. It's all the genocides and democides, the stuff that's killed 60 million Chinese was, you know, other humans and in, in Soviet Union and Nazis and all of these wars is the things that other humans do. And, and so um, when you violate civil rights in mass, uh, like they've been doing for the last year and a half, those are the kinds of things that lead to civil strife, you know, small demonstrations, riots, bigger and bigger, these kinds of events. These are the kind of stuff that can then lead to tremendous um, uh, civil wars, democides, and worse. And how on earth anybody who's an adult could not see this as one of the most common things that you should worry about societally as a rare but not that rare thing that's always on the offing that, that has to be thought about. And so that's that always blew my mind. Why is why do people think that these things just can't happen? Maybe we're too comfortable. Maybe maybe just that's part of the reason that people have never. A lot of people here, at least, have never actually lived through any serious, tumultuous historical period like that. So yeah. they don't they don't know what it's like, and they have normalcy bias. I think they just assume that it can't happen to them. That things are always going to just go the way they're going. But man, the last nineteen months should have dispelled that from most people's heads, right? Right. And you think so it can change. But and, and so and I'm, I meet a lot of people from Eastern Europe that seem to be um, uh, benefiting from that wisdom. Right. But and, I, and certainly my wife has that wisdom coming from Iran. It's still. But I would say the Iranian community generally, I would love to say that, yeah, they're disproportionately getting it because they're coming from. A, no, it, it seems to make no fucking difference. On average, the Iranian community in my city, we're all, you know, be a big community. They are just as Karen as your average person. It's like none of that experience mattered. It's like it just it's a different it's some it's it's a new brainwashing that has seems that they've coordinated off and separated from the other brainwashing because they think this is a real virus. This is a real infection. This is, re, you know, it's just totally different. So it's like some I'm not, you know, I would love to get real data on people coming from Eastern Europe, people coming from, uh, you know, totalitarian kinds of situations. Are they more or less likely? But my own anecdotes seem to, you know, not provide a good, you know, uh, suggest no, which is very surprising. 
Yeah, it seems like in uh, places like in France, they've been having, they, I mean, even before COVID, they had the Gillette Johns, the Yellow Vest people protesting, like very extreme protests against the government. And then, you know, as soon as COVID came along, it was a really good opportunity for the government to shut those down uh, due to the pandemic. But now that they're coming back and they're having these, you know, basically vax pass mandates, even to go food shopping or like into a, you know, like the food shopping thing really struck me because now when they're, they're excluding you from access to a food store, that's like, that's, that's how, how often is that really happening in France though? I did see a couple stories like that, but. Well, and then it, we can, you know, we can shift from France and talk about Australia, you yeah. know, Australia, well, Australia is probably the worst case. insane overreaction. You know, like they have like a handful of deaths and most of them are all people over the, you know, over 80 years old. And they're like totally going full totalitarian. And there's, you know, there's YouTube videos uh, galore of officers showing up to arrest or interview individuals because they posted something on Facebook about going to a protest. Yeah. It just blows my mind. It is like it comes back, you know, I'm really thankful that we have as Americans, we have the Bill of Rights that basically enshrines, you know, like we can, you know, say whatever we want about the government. We can can, thank the anti-federalists for that. Yeah. Well, it's just, it it just blows my mind that some of these countries are having these such extreme overreactions. And I can't tell if it's, you know, the mass hysteria, if it's, you know, bad actors in positions of power, grabbing more power. It's all of that. I guess. Yeah. It's, it's a big miasma of everything happening. I think it's a mixture. Yeah. Yeah. And Australia probably had COVID course through unstopped you know, in their, their previous winter during our summer of 2019. They have all of these excess, I haven't looked at it for a while, but they have all of these excess flu deaths from their, their winter, you know, June, July, or whatever, um, of, of 2019. And of course, we didn't know anything about COVID, and so, and so they have all these excess deaths. And it probably just went through unchecked, because probably most of, that, most of that place is already, the entire Southeast Asia seems to have some kind of prior immunity, because independent of their intervention stringency, it's all low deaths per 100,000, every place, independent of that. And so they've all been exposed to either cousins of coronavirus of 19 or just had it been floating, it already been floating, it already went through one whole season without anybody knowing, which is why they've, all, you know, they've already gotten it. And so they're just, they're just you know, they're just hurting themselves. Um, and there's, an, you know, uh, another thing that people always say, uh, the, I, I might say, look, 200,000 people were killed by virtue of hysteria deaths or lockdown deaths, or you point to some kind of lockdown deaths in some country, someplace, and they say, yes, but look at how many people died of COVID. Let's say 500,000 people died with COVID. Let's even set aside whether that's number's real. And the issue is not how many people died of COVID. The issue when I'm talking about lockdown deaths is how many people did lockdown save? And even people on our side make this mistake, right? And so they say, so like, lockdowns killed 200,000. Yeah, but COVID killed 500,000. No, no, no. Don't you mean the lock? If I say the lockdowns killed 200,000, didn't you mean to say that the lockdowns helped save 300,000, right? That would be a potential response, not necessarily a good one, because I'm not sure if I want to kill people, you know, like run over people in my ambulance to get to the, my patient to the hospital faster. That's a, yeah. But even supposing that at least you're comparing apples and apples, like I'm killing somebody, but I'm saving somebody. No. Um, the lock. The question is whether the lockdowns saved anybody, and the evidence shows so far, no. No. It so any lockdowns, death is a negative, right? Right. Yeah. It exacerbated the situation. It took you know something that was already 
I guess bad, but not that bad. And through overreaction, it made a bad situation substantially worse. I think you've said it before. I think I've seen you say it before, but I've seen you tweet like it probably would have been better if we had just done nothing at all. That would have been substantially better than than trying to intervene in the way that we did, which made it worse. And this is something that, you know, we see again and again in the historical record, you know, thalidomide being the most readily accessible example, maybe DTT. But oftentimes, you know, human societies in our arrogance presume to know better, you know, like, oh, well, this intervention, you know, should work. But when you make an intervention in a complex system, you know, oftentimes your intervention can have the exact opposite uh, result as intended because, you know, a complex system has so many variables all interacting together that you, you think you're going to make this one change, you know, and you're going to get a specific output. Well, when you make that one change, it impacts all these other things in a very domino-esque fashion. They're all related. And then your output ends up, you know, being worse off than had you done nothing at all. And that's what the precautionary principle is motivated by. The precautionary principle motivated by that very idea is that you created, they created this principle that just sort of formalizes the idea that you should not act uh, new policies. If you're going to propose a new policy, the burden is on you to show that the benefits are greater than the cost. And you better come up with a damn good case because none of us know really what the consequences are. So all of the burden is on you. But instead, since the beginning of this, whether it was lockdowns or children staying home or children masked for eight hours a day or everybody masked for eight hours a day, uh, or all, every single part of it, if a parent wanted to go defend and protect their kids from having to wear a mask eight hours a day, day it was incumbent upon them, uh, just a regular person with no science background, to show up to a, and have two minutes allotted to them in front of a school board. And have th- it was for them to then the burden to show that masks are harmful. Yeah. And of course, they're potentially harmful in a dozen ways, but to actually show they're harmful and actually with real data that is with a control group, it takes often years You say, okay, we finally did it. It took five years. We've got all we had a control. Yeah, and it turns they, out they, they swapped it. They swapped it around. They put the burden, yeah. the burden of responsibility on us, on the parent, instead of like, it's you guys, you're the ones pushing these policies. Yeah. You should be verifying for us whether or not this works before pushing right. on us. Not the Our other. job is to poke holes in your, in the evidence that you suppose that, no, that what you're saying doesn't make sense. They have to keep presenting the evidence that they're safe and to evidences that are safe is really hard too. It takes years. And so they're gonna have, and they turned it entirely on its head. Um, and it has to be pushed back. I would, I would recommend these parents when they go to these meetings say, no, I'm gonna use my two minutes to let you tell me how it is that something that's over my child's face for eight hours a day, blocking their only breathing holes, their emotional expressions, their identity, causing acne kinds of situations, preventing their ability to see down to the ground and enhancing falls, how is it that this, which is prima facie, obviously not safe, safe, you show me and you've got a minute and a half now. Otherwise, shut the fuck up. You know? <laughs> yes. that, that has to be the attitude. Not yeah. that the burden's on me to do anything. Exactly. No, totally. Exactly. Then the other rule of medicine that is so important do no is harm. do no harm. And, you know, from, from the beginning, whether it's the masks, whether it was the intubation of patients, uh, you know, whether it's these, these uh, experimental injections that they're now mandating people, like they are causing harm and they're clearly causing harm. You know, I have a couple of stories pulled up, but what interesting thing with the, the injections is that the VARES reports, you know, for many years, VARES has a very static sort of number 
of of deaths that yeah, were associated. It would go up a little bit. There was something like 200, yeah. 250 of deaths that were associated with vaccines that were being reported to VAERS per year. And then as soon as 2020 comes along, there's this huge spike. And now they're talking, you know, they're, and if you look in VAERS, it's anywhere from, you know, we're talking, we're talking thousands. And it's just, it, and when I have examples pulled up of a 15 year old boy from Sonoma, California, who was dead because he got the injection, who probably had absolutely no risk from COVID. And, you know, right there, like that's, yeah. that was harm caused. Fine the entire time, fine the entire time, gets the shot, all of a sudden not fine. 13 year old boy, Jacob Kleinick, he passed away and it is sleep and they're still not sure what caused his death. And there was another woman, a 30 year old nurse who got the injection. She passed away from vaccine induced thrombocytopenia, which countless is cases, basically honestly. clotting issues. There's a lot. And the VAERS reports is only who reports, you know, that's, that's assuming they're, they're even reporting how many of these cases are not being reported. So, well, it's just, they're, they're clearly just flying in the face of all of our established protocol when it comes to medicine. And there's no real good reason for it. You know, they, they just, it's just all based on panic and mass hysteria. Unless, you know, we leave room for the notion possibly that certain people at higher positions of power, there is a reason for it. And perhaps the reason is to cause harm. Maybe they do want, want to get to this point. I know a lot of people don't like That's to get all conspiratorial, conspiratorial with it, but when you look at the results of what's happening, like it's a little, it's kind of hard for me to conclude that there was any other purpose to this besides just trying to maximize death as much as possible, especially the lockdowns. No, well, so. CNN was very, very, happy about it it was driving their numbers up yeah. and uh you know the the pharmaceutical industry has minted i think dozens of billionaires uh in the last 18 months so it's like and if you look at the couple of these companies moderna most uh, most is is really good example their stock price was hovering i think in like the 40s in like february of uh of 2020 yeah. and now they're like 350 360 dollars a share i think you know whether the motivation was profit or harm or like depopulation or something along those lines doesn't even really matter at this point you know the point is like this is where we are this yeah is this is doing, where we are this know? is what we're dealing with and these people are we're, we're constantly being it is, it is not about health that's what the point is it's well yeah, and just to bring it and just to bring it back to do no harm like the other uh, the other part of of medicine is informed consent and in, informed and consent is being violated in both parts almost everybody that took the vax um uh consensually that is without a mandate requiring it for their job was not informed um, they have not been telling folks the actual dangers. They have not been uh, telling folks the actual e efficacy, which has been uh, both exaggerated and shown in relative proportions. If you really want to inform somebody, then you have to show them that, look, your chances of, of first of all, of, you know, you have a 1% chance of even getting COVID at all in the next, you know, two years. And this is going to lower it so that your risks of, of getting COVID and getting you know, sick by virtue of COVID then are more like, let's say 0.1% chance or, you know, or the absolute numbers and the absolute risk reductions are incredibly small when you incorporate the fact of how unlikely you are to get it in the first place. That none of these kinds of normal things that should be done to inform somebody have been done. And then the other whole class are the folks that um, haven't really consented uh, oh, either weekly because there's constant ever ever pressure from everybody around you which is a kind of societal pressure which is not 
which is wrong. It's a, it's a kind yes. of evil. No, you, ha- you can't well. come to our party. This is or actual coercion. You will lose your job or you'll be kicked out of society, unable to go to venues, unable to go to the store. This is just coercion. Informed consent has been violated on both sides for nearly everybody that has taken the vax. Agreed. Yeah. Like you said earlier, these are crimes against humanity. I, I don't think no. there is any other way to put it. And anyone who's familiar with the Nuremberg trials and Nuremberg Code and all of that, just, you know, read, read the first part of it and you'll see that they've already uh, violated I, I, I've even, be, I've seen people make the argument that, um, you know, the Nuremberg Code does not apply because we're not in, you know, Europe. And I'm just like, I, really? Like, that's your argument? Like, yeah. So, wow. we're, so we're not going to take any lessons from history, okay? Because the history happened over there. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, it's absurd. Yeah, there's, there's so many uh, uh, lawyer types that you'll talk to these folks, and they're instead of actually trying to put forth an ethical argument, they'll just come back with lawyer bullcrap, you know? And it's like, it's like most of these lawyers seem to not rem- remember that we're trying to approximate to some extent some notions of ethicality and so forth. It, it, it always blows my mind. I, I, don't, I don't even bother getting arguments with lawyers. Yeah, I just, it doesn't seem like, frankly, it's all of our established law, all of our established jurisprudence, large swaths of this, all these policies related to COVID just seem incredibly illegal, you know, from start to finish, whether it's the lockdowns or it's the injections or it's the mask mandates. Um, It just, and it blows my mind that, you know, it comes back to the culture that they can, you know, enact these things on a macro social scale and you know look at people like us who are being like wait a minute let's not go crazy here um let's see if these interventions are actually effective um look at us as if we are the bad guy yeah. or the, the anti-science <laughs> people the where the death call- disinformation well, we're the death call, yeah. according to them it's- we're killing people we're spreading the infection etc cetera, etc cetera. it's like no you guys are the death cult you're the ones obsessed with death and you're the ones wishing death on us if we don't get the shot where we just hope we're fine and that's yeah. another thing, too, is you, you find a lot of these people who are pushing this, this stuff, like they'll say, oh, we care about life and we're trying to save lives and stuff. And as soon as you tell them that you're not getting the shot and you're choosing not to, oh, well, have fun on your ventilator, you know, yeah. enjoy, enjoy dying in the hospital and stuff like that. So it's like, oh, well, yeah. you actually don't care about life. Yeah. You know, if I don't conform with what you want me to do. You're perfectly fine if I die. When the other way around, the people like us who are questioning these, these things Everyone I know who got the shot, I just hope they're fine. That's it. I don't wish any harm on anyone. And I'm not talking about this because I want them, you know, to come to harm. Sure. We might meme sometimes or joke about some of these things, but at the end of the day, it's like, we're coming from a place of concern. That's why we talk about this stuff and not just for the unvaccinated, but for the vaccinated as well. We want, we want them to be okay. We don't want them to be really concerned about health. You know, they'd be advising, you know, and, and talk about interventions that we could do that do no harm, you know, like, physical exercise, vitamin C, yeah. vitamin All D. off the table. You know, and, and it was weird. I, I, my first Twitter ban, my first Twitter suspension um, related to COVID was because I replied to a comment uh, where I encouraged people to, to look into vitamin C and look into vitamin D because all of the, the early evidence, and this was way back in April um, of 2020, but all of the early evidence seemed to show that those things had very protective prophylactic effects um, and we had, you know, physical exercise coming out much later. 
but they, we have all these little things that we could be encouraging at the macro social level, but we aren't. It's so yeah. strange that Fauci, you know, it, he didn't, he, he didn't come out until it was, he was asked, I think by Jennifer Gardner, it was Jennifer Gardner on an Instagram live, um, you know, about like, you know, vitamin supplements. And it was only then that he admitted that he was taking vitamin C and D. Yeah. She asked him, she was like, Oh, are you taking this stuff? Do you think it works? And he was like, yeah, I think it's a good way to like boost your immune system, this and this and that. And I take it. And, and that was that. That was that he never mentioned it since, and he only mentioned it when he was asked. But they know. Yeah, I mean, they just know. Not giving anybody medical advice, but I just think it's very funny that, that we have these things that we know work. That there's, immune a, system. there's a lot of good science behind them, and that they have very low costs in terms of you know potential uh, bad side effects. And yet, you know, at the federal level, at the institutional level, we don't see any advice yeah. whatsoever. And not just that, you're not allowed to even suggest these as alternatives to the shot. Right. Now, the Dr. McCulloch, I don't know if you've seen him talking about this. Uh, he was he, he had to quit his job from Texas. He's a, uh, you know, I think it's, I can't remember his first name, Dr. McCulloch. He's been on all over this. He's been complaining that there's a, he was the first one that actually had published uh, COVID uh, uh, recommendations for how to treat patients with COVID. Nobody published anything on any kind of recommendations of how to actually treat it. It was just nothing, nowhere. And it was as if there's just a massive black hole in the community about it, like you shouldn't even suggest that you should do treatment because I think Trump had suggested treatments and so now it was something that was only Trump would do and That's so you would do that kind of bullshit right I've got I'm gonna have to head out guys but one thing I wanted to mention you know in terms of litmus tests the way that you behave towards your opponents compared to the way the way behave, the way they behave another litmus test is that you only one of the sides of this argument is trying to silence the other side. Yes. And that should tell you who's on Everything the right side. you need to know, really. Yeah, right. Shout out uh, you... where everybody can find you. Uh, so, uh, you know, my, I'm mostly on Twitter. Uh, Mark Changizi, Chang, but then I-Z-I. Uh, at Twitter, I'm at uh, YouTube, my Science Moment series, Mark Changizi. And I'm also a Telegram channel and, uh, you know, I'm at Facebook and Instagram as well. But and uh, but from those places, you can find me at other, you know, all, all of the other places. Awesome. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show and accepting the invite. We are really appreciative of this and we think the stuff you're doing is really awesome. It's brave. You know, keep doing it, man. Keep kicking ass. All right. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. You too. Guys, don't forget to subscribe, like, like comment, share. All that stuff helps. Thanks for watching. Peace out.